Uh, my name is Dave, as uh, Owen said, uh, and uh, I just want to welcome uh, you all. It's fabulous to see you all uh, here in person, and if you're out there uh, somewhere on, uh, on screens at home, you're very welcome too. It's great to be together, uh, and it's great to be uh, able to worship God together and to study his word. As Owen said, we're going to be continuing our series entitled Hope in Dark Times, uh, a series that we're running through the book of Daniel, and it's a fabulous book, actually. Uh, and today, as Owen said, we get to uh, one of the most famous stories in uh, the Bible, or certainly one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, I guess, uh, as Owen said, many of you will remember this story from uh, Sunday school days. I don't know how it was treated in your Sunday school days. I hope and I pray that we will learn something fresh from God as we study it today. I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak into our hearts uh, and challenge us today uh, about our lives. We're going to talk about Daniel. Uh, and Daniel, uh, I, in Daniel, I see a life of faith. You know, this was a man who had faith, uh, and that fa faith was outworked. And we're going to look at how his faith was outworked uh, as we go through uh, this chapter this afternoon. I just want to impress on you at the very start of this. This is a real story. It's a real live event. You know, this is not some fairy tale. This is a live event. It happened. It was real. Uh, and I want you to get hold of that as we look at how uh, God dealt with his people. And the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, how... Um, God's supernatural power was at work. And today we're going to look at another story where that's so true in Daniel chapter 6. We're going to read it. Uh, I'm going to read it. We're going to read the whole of the chapter. It's a long chapter, uh, but we're going to read the whole of it. Uh, and we're going to draw lessons from it principally around what it live, looks to, like to live a life of faith. And just to place it in context, we're going to start uh, with verse 30 of chapter 5. Uh, and then read through the whole of chapter 6. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, just uh, uh, open them up at that. If you haven't, the words will come on the screen, uh, and you'll be able to follow it on there. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, or princes, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was within him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, 
the prefects and the satraps, the councillors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the, the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you sign, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing may be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. He came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted God. And the king commanded that those and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. 
Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray and then we're going to work our way through that passage. Lord Jesus, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you will teach us afresh from this passage this afternoon. I pray that no matter how familiar this story is to us, that as we work our way through it this afternoon, you by your Holy Spirit will speak into our hearts. I pray pray that you'll cause a response in our hearts to what we read about the life of Daniel and how that applies to us as those who believe in you or those who are yet to find you for themselves. Lord Jesus, will you do your work in us? We just say our hearts are open to receive from you this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just grab some water. So as we saw last week, Belshazzar was ruling Babylon. He was a proud and arrogant man. And he continued to worship idols. Our reading starts with the demise of Belshazzar and the downfall of the Babylonian kingdom, in line with the message that Daniel had delivered uh, to the king. But we see, remarkably, in spite of the message that Daniel had brought to Belshazzar, that he is honored, he is given promotion. He's promoted by Belshazzar before he. Belshazzar is killed and Darius takes over the kingdom. Now as Darius takes over the kingdom, we see him putting in place his own form of governance. We see it happening today, don't we? When a leader changes, the whole guard changes, you know? The new leader wants to clear out all of those who were there before and put in place his own people, people who are loyal to him and who are trustworthy. Very often this means clearing out all of those who had positions of authority and power and replacing them with his own selected team. In the days of Daniel, and actually still in some countries today, this would have meant that the former leaders were banished, uh, maybe even put in prison. But remarkably not so with Daniel. Even as a Jew... Living in exile, he'd held positions of power in Babylon for over 50 years. He'd survived the rule of many emperors. And they wanted to retain his services and to give him even greater power. He was a survivor. But don't get me wrong, he was a survivor because of God's grace that was at work in his life. Not because of his own abilities or qualities. It was through God's grace that he rose to power and prominence. 
It was through God's grace that he continued to find favor as rulers changed. It was because God had put within him a different spirit. So we see Daniel as one of the top three officials in the land to whom 120 princes would give account. Their role was to ensure that Darius received everything that was due to him, that he should not suffer any loss. And in this role, Daniel continued to impress, so much so that Darius was intent on giving him sole responsibility, sole responsibility for the entire kingdom, a plan that was naturally not welcome uh, to the other high officials and satraps. Every so often, there's a television program, a documentary, or maybe a book published that gives us an insight into what goes on behind the closed doors of government in this country or abroad, or maybe behind big business, you know, in the boardrooms of big business. We get a glimpse of the political intrigue, the scheming that goes on, the backstabbing, the clashes of personalities and ambitions, the quest for power and ambition and wealth. Well, what's new? We see this playing out big time in this chapter. His colleagues hadn't done enough to cause Darius to want to promote them. So their alternative course of action was to find something against Darius's chosen one, Daniel, that would discredit him and cause Darius to change his mind. These other officials were determined to find some dirt on Daniel that they could present to the king that would cause him to change his mind, but they could find nothing. That brings me to my first point. Daniel's faith was outworked in his character. We can sometimes lose track of time as we move from chapter to chapter in a book like Daniel. We know he was a young man when he was brought into exile in Babylon. And we know he served under previous kings. But the events we're reading about today happened when Daniel was in his mid-80s. He'd held senior roles in government for decades. He was trusted by kings with collecting their finances. He must have faced in that role numerous temptations. Those who would offer him bribes the opportunity to use his power and his influence to gain personal wealth or to gratify himself at others' expense. I guess we're all too familiar with reports in the media of those who've been in positions of power in public life or in the business world who've been forced to step down or have suffered reputational damage as a result of shady dealings inappropriate relationships, abuse of power, or some other failing. Sometimes it's the very fear of something in the past coming to light that prevents people from standing for public office or causes them to withdraw their candidacy. It's truly remarkable that these other officials couldn't lay a finger on Daniel that there was no dirt to dish, especially after so many years of public service. This was God at work in Daniel. 
His faith shone through his character. Not just in his dealings with the king, but in the way he interacted with ordinary people. I wonder how it is for us. If we're Christians, does our faith in Jesus lead us to living a life in a way that glorifies him? Do we seek to live our lives in accordance with his word and his will? When we mess up, as we surely do, I do, are we quick to come back to him and to confess and to seek his forgiveness? In recent months, we've started to look towards establishing an eldership team within Foundation Church. And in doing so, we've been keen to ensure, first and foremost, that we gather those whose faith is evident in their character. It's so important. None of us who are meeting would claim to be sinless. <laughs> Far from it. But we are seeking to have our character shaped by God's word his grace and his spirit at work in us and to be faithful in following Jesus. Just as Daniel, whilst living in exile, was faithful in following God, let us be a people who, whilst living in a society that increasingly has values that are alien to our faith, let us allow our faith to shine through in the way we live for Jesus. Secondly, Daniel's faith was outworked in his commitment. Those intent on Daniel's downfall came up with a cunning plan. They realized they'd have to persuade the king to invoke a new law, one which they were confident would ensnare Daniel. To do so, they first lied to Darius in claiming that there was unanimity among all of those in any form of leadership that this new law was required. For this to be true, surely Daniel, one of the most senior officials, would have had to agree. And surely that wasn't the case. But secondly, they appealed to the king's vanity, setting him up as the all-sufficient one. You know, here was Darius, the one who, for the next 30 days, was to be able to meet the needs of all of the people. The people weren't to turn to any other God or to any other person. They were to turn to Darius. It's quite ridiculous, really, to think that he could have fallen for that, but he did. For 30 days, no one could ask for help from anyone other than the king, as if he would be accessible to them, as if he could cope with their requests or meet their needs if they did come that he was sufficiently vain and arrogant to fall for their proposal. And he enacted a new law in a way that even he couldn't undo when he realized that he'd been trapped. So what was Daniel's response to this new law? Well, Daniel was fully aware of the new law and the consequences of failure to comply with it. And as on previous occasions, when his faith was put to the test, Daniel did not waver. His faith in God was so important to him that he'd established his daily routine. And this new law was not going to change that. 
So he went as usual to his house to pray. You know, it's so instructive to see Daniel's routine. He had a defined place where he went to pray. He wasn't hidden away. He wasn't in the basement. He went to his room at the top of the house, to a room that was facing Jerusalem, the holy city, where the temple was in ruins, and he had the windows open. And we're told that he got down on his knees to pray, just as we were encouraged to do by Pete Cornford the other week. The posture was one of reverence for God, of recognition for who God is, and recognition of who he, Daniel, is. We're told that he prayed and gave thanks. Hang on a minute, Daniel. The very thing you're doing is likely to lead to you being thrown into the den of lions and you're giving thanks? This is a man who understands that God is in charge and can honestly say and pray, thy will be done. He bows the knee, not just physically, but metaphorically, he submits to the will of God. There's so much we can learn from Daniel's commitment. His walk with God was a daily experience. His relationship with God was such that he wanted to talk with him, not just once in a while, but regularly. His commitment caused him to be disciplined. Not a popular concept these days, I know. Having a set pattern of praying and reading our Bibles each day only becomes legalism when we do it out of a sense of duty rather than out of a sense of love for God, out of thankfulness for who he is and what he's done for us and the relationship we now enjoy with him. Daniel met with God in this way three times a day, not out of duty, but because he wanted to. As I've prepared this, you know, God's challenged me about my prayer life. You know? How much time do I spend talking with him? How much time do I spend? Do I, do I actually long to come into his presence and converse with him? You know, I've got three, three kids. Many of you in this room have got kids. What a joy it is when they come and they talk uh, to us. Not just soundbite, not just the odd you know, snippet, but when they come and have a decent conversation with us, you know? It's such a joy, isn't it? Just think how God delights when we come and talk with him and share with him, not just what's going on in our lives, but what we think about him as God our Father. I wonder, how is your prayer life? Do we treat God as a slot machine? Go to him only when we need or want something from him? Is our communication with him just a kind of a series of telegram prayers, you know? Oh, I've just thought of something, I'll pray it now, and so on. Or do we actually make time in our day to spend before him. Tell him how we feel about him. How we feel about all that he has done for us and give him the glory and the honor that's due to him. 
I wonder how each of us would have responded if we'd been placed in the same position as Daniel. What if a law was passed in this country that banned us from praying or banned us from meeting together? Would we be like the disciple Peter when Jesus was arrested and Peter was put on the spot and he disclaimed, knowing Jesus, he said, I don't even know who this is. Or would we perhaps be content to go into hiding, to pray, or to meet for fear of being found out? Or would we, like Daniel, be full of faith? Would we stand up firm against such tests? Would we be prepared to take a stand for God's kingdom principles and values rather than to submit to those of an alien world? Daniel's faith shone through in his commitment to God and in in wanting to maintain his relationship with him. Let's seek to do the same. Let's be serious about our prayer lives. You know, we've got an opportunity on Wednesday night to gather together as a whole church to pray. Seize that opportunity. Please join with us to pray. It's so important that we pray collectively, but we pray in person, individually as well. Do join us on Wednesday night. Thirdly, I want us to see that Daniel's faith was outworked in his confidence in God. Here Darius realizes that he's been tricked. He would love to have revoked the law that he'd agreed to, but it was in writing. And according to the law of the, lead, of the leads of the Medes and Persians, uh, it couldn't be changed. It couldn't be withdrawn or amended even by the one who had signed it into existence. So Darius was trapped just as the officials had planned. Isn't it interesting to see Darius's reaction in verse 16? He clearly recognized Daniel's devotion to God. He'd seen it for himself. He clearly knew that there was no hope for Daniel unless God intervened. And even he, a pagan worshiper, seems to encourage Daniel in his faith and to join Daniel in asking God to deliver him. When we read how troubled he was at the thought of Daniel being thrown into the lions, and all because of his vanity and naivety, it's clear that he had huge respect and admiration, maybe even affection for Daniel. Daniel made no defense when he was brought before Darius. He didn't point the finger at his accusers or seek to justify his actions. He didn't even call witnesses to attest to his good character. Instead, he allowed himself to be lowered into the den of lions, knowing that his only hope of surviving the ordeal was if God intervened. This was yet another massive test of Daniel's faith. When the king came to the den in the morning, there was a sense of relief and joy as he heard that Daniel was still alive. Daniel's first response to the king was not a hostile one. You know, why did you allow me, me to be put in this situation? Didn't you see what my false accusers were up to? No. He speaks respectfully to the king. 
And he gives God glory for preserving him, for sending an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. Just as God had delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, so he acted to save Daniel from the lions. Just as his three friends emerged from the furnace with no smell of fire on them and without any singeing to their hair, Daniel was brought up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he trusted in God. You know, our God doesn't do things in half measures. As Paul puts it when he writes to the Ephesians, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. You know, this is a miraculous escape for Daniel. Something only God could do. Let me ask you, do you believe in the God of the miraculous? Are you able to believe the miracles that you read in the Old Testament, maybe the miracles that Jesus performed or we saw, we see in the, uh, 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 performed by the disciples after Jesus' death? And you think that was okay for then, but not now, surely. I tell you, God is still at work. God is still performing miracles. The fact, yes, you agree? God is still performing miracles. The fact that many of us in this room have been saved, saved by grace, is a, a miracle, one of the biggest miracles, that Jesus should come to earth to die, to live a sinless life, and to die to bear our sins, that we might be set free. That's a miracle in itself. The cancelled penalty of our sin. When you pray, do you do so believing? You know, we've seen some miraculous healings in life groups, in our families. You know, God is still at work performing the miraculous. Believe it. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, we recite that verse many times. But do we believe it? Because if we do, then the God of Daniel is at work today, still performing miracles. Before we finish in chapter 6, I want us to see how what we've read points us towards Jesus. After his resurrection, when Jesus joined two disciples and talked with them as they walked towards Emmaus, he explained to them that the events that had taken place in Jerusalem, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth and the disappearance of his body from the tomb had all been spoken of by the prophets. In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 24, verse 27, we read, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What we see in Daniel chapter 6 are parallels to the story of Jesus. And I want to point you to a few. Both, Jesus, sorry, both Daniel and Jesus excelled in wisdom. And understanding. In Daniel 1 and verse 20, we read, In every matter of wisdom and understanding, the king, Nebuchadnezzar at that time, found Daniel and his friends ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters 
in his whole kingdom. And in Matthew 7 and verse 29, we're told that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes, the ones they'd always looked to before. Both Daniel and Jesus were promised a kingdom. We read earlier that Darius wanted to put Daniel in charge of the whole kingdom. And then in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, the great prophecy about the coming Messiah, we read that Jesus of Jesus that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it and to uphold it with right justice and righteousness. Next, we see that no fault was found in either of them, but they faced trumped-up charges. Earlier in our passage, we read of Daniel, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And his accusers said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And then in Luke 23 and verse 4, Pilate says of Jesus, I find no guilt in this man. But the chief priests claimed he stirs up the people and that he was one who was misleading the people. Both were convicted in spite of an unwilling authority figure. Darius was greatly distressed when he realized the implications of the law that he'd passed. In the case of Jesus, neither King Herod nor Pilate could find any wrong with Jesus. Pilate wanted to release him, but he bowed to the pressure from the crowds, egged on by the chief priests and the elders to release Barabbas instead and to crucify Jesus. Next, we see that a stone was sealed over the entrance to the pit or the tomb. We read earlier that after Daniel was lowered into the lion's den, a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and sealed in place with the king's own signet. You'll recall that after Jesus was crucified and laid in the tomb, a stone was rolled across the entrance and Pilate gave instructions. You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and guarding and setting a guard. Next we see that both Daniel and Jesus emerged alive. God protected Daniel from the lions. No harm came to him. Don't get me wrong, he did eventually die. <laughs> We're not quite clear when. Uh, but in uh, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13, we read that the angel says to Daniel, go on your way till the end. You will rest. Rest meaning you will die. But Jesus, Jesus rose from the grave after three days, having conquered sin and death. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 tells us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives. 
he lives. I'm just finding my notes now. iPads are great, except when your finger moves over too much. Well. Okay. And finally, on, uh, on this slide, uh, we see that both Daniel and Jesus caused others to rejoice in and worship God. We see Darius exhorting his whole people to worship God, acknowledging that there will be no end to God's kingdom. When the apostle Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he told the crowds, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And on that day, 3,000 responded by repenting of their sins and believing on Jesus. Daniel, as we've seen, was a man of faith. He trusted in God. And trusting in God shaped his character. It led to him wanting to talk to God regularly in prayer and to him having confidence, complete confidence, that God was in control and that he was safe in God's hands. In Hebrews 11, though, it's not, though he's not named, Daniel was one of those whose faith was commended. In his case, through faith, he stopped the mouths of lions. Reading on into chapter 12 of Hebrews, there's an exhortation to us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's Daniel and all of the others mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the founder or author and the perfecter or finisher of our faith. In his work on the cross, he's enabled us to be forgiven of our sins, to be made right with God. Many of you here today or listening online will have taken that step of faith to believe in Jesus, just as those 3,000 did on the day of Pentecost. But maybe some here or some listening online haven't done so yet. Now, I want to invite you today he delivers. He rescues. He rescues us from the penalty of our sin, from eternal separation from him. He gives us a sure and certain hope of an eternity with him. He works signs and wonders. If you've not placed your trust in him yet, place your trust in him. He will not disappoint For those who've taken the decision to follow Jesus, he's committed to bringing to completion the work he started in our lives. Whilst we don't and we can't 
do anything to earn our salvation or to make ourselves right with God. We do have a part to play once we've experienced his grace extended to us. The writer of the letter describes the Christian life as a race. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Those who run marathons, we have one or two here, uh, know that you have to go into training uh, to run a marathon. I've never run one, you can probably tell, but um, uh, you have to go into training to run uh, a marathon. It takes perseverance. You don't turn up at a marathon on the day of the marathon having done no training, with no preparation, no water supplies or nourishment at all. You do your preparation. There's a certain discipline about it. We're called upon to lay aside every weight, every sin that clings closely to us, to be like Daniel, men and women of good character, those who others would struggle to find any complaint against, any accusation against. And just like Daniel, we're called to be men and women of prayer. A people who have confidence that in all situations, God is in charge. Let me ask you, are we those people? Are we those people who've put our trust in God and that we're serious about following him? We're serious about being of good character? We're serious about talking with him, communing with him, sharing our lives with him, but actually bringing him glory? Are we serious about our relationship with him in such a way that we will trust him no matter what we face, no matter what challenges are put in front of us, we will know that God is in charge. Let's be those people. I'm going to hand back to Owen and we're going to sing our final song.